0: Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies on the New Books Network. I'm Annette Joseph-Gabrielle, the co-host of the channel. Today, I'm I'm joined by Dr. Sammy Shaw to talk about her new book, Body Minds Reimagined, Disability, Race, and Gender in Black Women's Speculative Fiction. Sammy is an Assistant Professor of Gender and Women's Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Her interdisciplinary research focuses on disability, race and gender in contemporary American literature and culture, especially African-American literature, speculative fiction and women's literature. Thank you, Sammy, for joining me today to talk about your wonderful book.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So I'd like to begin from the beginning, the cover art, Um, just kind of right when you pick up the book, the cover art is so striking and so apt. Um, For listeners, you can view the cover art um, in the short description of the book on the new books website. It's an image of a black woman with lots of gears that form part of her face and torso. And in the background are skyscrapers. Sammy, can you tell us more about this image and how it is in conversation with the rest of your book?
1: Yeah, so this image is by um, an artist named Tahir Karl Karmali. It's part of a series um, that he did in 2014. And for me, Duke University Press was actually the one who found this art. I pretty much told them I wanted, I liked mixed media art and that I wanted a black artist and that I wanted something that was not pure sci-fi. You know, I didn't want something that was just like robots and computers, but something that had um, the bodily human element that I think is really important to the kinds of books that I talk about um, in the book, that even though there is one chapter that's very focused on technology and science fiction and futurity, that a lot of the other books are speculative fiction that are not technological in their focus. Um, So for me, this image, when um, the press sent me um, Carmali's work and a couple of images from this series, this one was the immediate winner for me because it blends, I mean, it's a a black figure that I read as a black woman, um, but then it's mixed with all of this technology, as you said, um, something that I read as kind of wings coming out of her back, Um, the skyscrapers in the background, and then this blue sky with clouds. So for me, it did a really great job of addressing the technological and the future, but also in a way that felt familiar and human at the same time, that there were these natural elements mixed in. And that, for me, really embodies the wide range of approaches and work of the literature that I'm, I'm analyzing.
0: Mm-hmm. So there is really sort of a, a wide range. And you talk a little bit in your acknowledgements um, about how you came to this project and how it evolved from one that had an even wider range, right? A much, a much larger scope. Um, can you share with our listeners the origin story of this book? And particularly as it evolved, who was the reader or the communities of readers you ultimately had in mind?
1: Yeah, so when I began graduate school, um, my interest was really in bringing together black feminist theory and disability studies. Um, I was wanting to see more black feminists engage disability in the really critical and interesting way that was happening in disability studies, but there weren't many people in disability studies who were had real training and grounding in critical race theory or black feminist theory. So my initial project was just disability and Black women's writing, like of all time, you know, <laughs> something just really huge, broad. Um, that was the initial concept. And I am very lucky to have some amazing mentors um, in different fields, but in particular, Rosemary Garland Thompson, um, I was having... Just coffee with her between the sessions at the Society for Disability Studies conference, and explaining to her, you know, all of my wonderful and vast ideas for this dissertation I wanted to write, and she just stopped me and said, "It's, it's too much. You'll never finish. You know, it will never get done." Um, and she said, "You know, you can always write about these, these things later, right? When you actually have a job and someone's paying you <laughs> to research." <laughs> um, but t- you want to do something more focused in order to complete a project, get the degree, get a job. Um, and so at the time, there was very little work on disability and speculative fiction, although um, there's been a lot more since then in, in the time from when I first started my dissertation to now. Um, and so she said, you know, that uh, that chapter that you were talking about on Octavia Butler, that's your project that, you know, just. Just science fiction and disability. That's your whole project. Um, and initially I didn't believe her. I thought there's no way, there's no way that there is enough material that I could really do a whole project on it. Um, but I spent some time that summer just reading more widely beyond Butler. You know, really my familiarity with with speculative fiction was with Butler. You know, I loved her work. Um and I engage with a lot of fan communities. So I really like to lift that up, that a lot of the books that I encountered and read, um, some of which don't end up appearing in the book, but that I'm familiar with, I came across them because I got on the Black Speculative Fiction Society or Black Science Fiction Society's website and their chat forums on thanks for the fiction, the Carl Brandon Society, the Feminist SF Listservs, and I just started asking people to recommend. So a mix of academics, writers, and fans were the ones that helped me find the material to do this because for many of the books that I was reading, there was no academic work on them at all so far. Um, so that's how I came into it was getting help from a wide range of people, um, who then helped me find the things and bring them together. And I realized that there was just so much richness, um, in this area, in this field, a lot of new work coming out. And I realized that there was, there was enough there to work with more than enough, more than I could actually fit in a single Mm. book. Yeah.
0: So you started out by talking about kind of wanted to do work in these two fields and in, in Black feminist theory and disability studies, um, and and I find that there are several key concepts and terms from these two fields in the book, um, including disability, um, which which you 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 do a really a really powerful explanation of with the or, or the choice to use parentheses around dis and disability. Um, and also the the concept of intersectionality. Uh, But one of the key terms that really oriented me in your work was body minds, which you state is different from the more popular expression, mind and body. Um, How do you define body minds and how does it differ from mind and body?
1: Yeah, for me, body mind is really about the embarkation of these two concepts that we've been encouraged to understand as separate. Um, And Mm -hmm. one of the reasons that I'm invested in it is because of the way that speculative fiction in particular encourages us to think about the relationship and the impact of what we think of as mind on body and body on mind that really Mm -hmm. reveals how inextricable they are, how deeply complicated they are. Um, So there's that kind of level. And but then it speaks to all of these fields. So in disability studies, when we think about things like invisible disabilities, so something like depression, right? That can have very physical effects of exhaustion um, and yet also be very much in our minds, right? That it's not a singular thing that you can just say depression is located in the mind only. Um, When we think of histories of, Critical race studies, black feminist theory, feminist studies, the mind body divide has been used to denigrate marginalized folks for a long time, right? Saying that black folks and women are ruled by our bodies, that we are, we don't have the ability to rise above our bodies and just be intellects of the mind, right? Um, so again, this divide actually has an oppressive history. Um, and the way that these black women writers are pushing against it in so many texts where they're saying these are not separable; they deeply impact each other and the world then also impacts body minds um, was really important for this book. So it's a term that has been picking up more speed in disability studies. Um, Margaret Price is the, the scholar that I've been drawing on um, for my theorization of it. But the more that I saw the way that it had such strong resonance for the way that minds and bodies were being represented in speculative fiction, especially as we break these rules of reality so that things can happen that would not happen in our typical realist world, Body Mind became just super central to what I was trying to argue and what I feel like these books are trying to do. Mm-hmm.
0: So I really appreciate your gesturing to kind of the way that the mind-body divide has historically been used to marginalize. Um, and you you point to in your first chapter the sort of oppressive history of, of ableism as well, um, not just for disabled people, particularly in the context of slavery, but for all black people, you argue. Um, and so I was really struck by your discussion of slave narratives, for example, and the reasons why their authors often avoid their discussions of disability. Um, Particularly of themselves as disabled, and yet when I think of your definition of disability in the book, it applies to so many of the enslaved Black women who are now, to some extent, canonical, right? So, um, Sojourner Truth you mentioned in in your chapter has you know had a hand that was disabled in an accident. Um, when we think about Harriet Tubman, who had seizures after a blow to her head. Um, I think of Harriet Jacobs who, you know, lived with the physical effect of being confined in a small space for many years. And yet the different kinds of narratives they produce, specifically for abolitionist purposes, don't seem to give them the room to engage with those disabilities, at least not beyond notions of like triumph and overcoming. So when you turn to speculative fiction, when you turn to neo-slave narratives, um, especially the ones that fall into the genre of speculative fiction, how do these create that room to engage with the imbrication you discuss, right? Race, gender, and disability in the context of slavery?
1: Yes. So I think one of the most important things in thinking about the difference between the ways that actual slave narratives, formerly enslaved mm-hmm. folks, talk about their body minds and typically avoid talking about disability too much unless it is in someone else's body is kind of an example of the cruelties of slavery or as a way of demonstrating overcoming, is that the intent of slave narratives and the slave narratives are so different, right? Mm-hmm. Slave narratives were trying to prove our humanity, to prove that we as Black people could be citizens. And to do that, um, they were appealing to the norms of citizenship, which is about you know, upstandingness and ability, um, particularly intellectual abilities, um, but also physical, right? Being able to contribute and work, um, all of those things. So in that way, um, i it's such a different thing than what neo-slave narratives are trying to do. So neo-slave narratives typically are trying to recover the history that was lost because Black folks have not left as much archival evidence behind. A lot of the ways we appear in the historical archive are through writings of whiteness, right? What white people have said about us. Um, And so it's partially a recovery. It's partially an attempt, neo-slave narratives to connect us back to slavery, to help us remember our history and to create the stories with the emotion and rawness That neo-slave or typical slave narratives could not do, right? They could not be as explicit. They could not be um, as as grotesque in some ways, right? They had to really mitigate. They were often speaking to middle-class white women to appeal to their emotional senses. Um, Jacobs is a great example of kind of appealing um, to to white women um, through norms of like motherhood, right? Mm So because they have such different intentions, they can do different things, they can highlight different things. So neo-slave narratives are much more about recovering the the horrors that could not have been expressed um, because of the intention and goals and time period of traditional slave narratives. And through that then we see more representations of disability, we see the real impact, the real bodily impact that continuous violence um, and neglect violence in multiple forms, right? Left on the body minds of enslaved people. Um, and we also then get to start to see how that, the violence, the disabling violence of slavery was directly caused by um, a conception of the, of Black people as already disabled, right? So there's a lot of discourses of disability that shapes and allowed for disabling violence. And that's part of what I think neo-slave narratives are really able to highlight because they're free of the expectation. They're not trying to prove our humanity anymore. They're trying to connect back to the inhumanity of this white history of oppression, right? Um, So those different attentions, those different time periods allow neo-slave narratives to engage disability in a way that it couldn't have been done in the past.
0: So th- this idea of intent, um, of neo-slave narrative seems to come up again when we think about the intent of of different forms of speculative fiction. So I want to kind of continue in this vein of intent um, and to think about... The, the characters you analyze in the different books, um, their relationship to disability. So to frame this question, I want to share with readers a quote from chapter three that I found really striking um, where you write, and I quote, one's experience of a disability is not only about physical and mental manifestations, but also about one's environment and the interaction between body, mind, and society. And I want to dwell on that interaction between body, mind, and society for a second, particularly because of the ways that race and gender um, kind of condition those interactions. So you talk about in science fiction, for example, with often white male protagonists, usually in the superhero genre, um, things that may initially be cast as a disability. So for example, um, a character who's hearing voices um, is very, re- qui- is very quickly recast as a hyper ability. Mm-hmm. But that recasting or that reframing, that shift in the relationship between body, mind and society doesn't always seem to happen for Black women characters. And, and I hesitate to characterize that as a good or a bad thing necessarily. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm wondering then, can you say more about Black women characters and their relationship to disability, particularly in the ways that social perception um, conditions, that interaction between body, mind, and society?
1: Yeah. So I think particularly for Black women characters, um, there is some association with the superhero, right? Like this idea Mm. of a strong Black woman. um, And there have been several critiques of kind of the the able-bodied, able-minded undergirdings of the strong black uh-huh. women and, and now many more critiques of how this impacts our mental health. Um, uh-huh. So I, I think that the representations that I talk about and representations in other texts of disabled black women characters um, is that it gets messy. When we have folks with only one marginalized identity, it's very easy to kind of clean that up, fix it up or make that um, have a clear understanding of this is the thing that is, you know, holding them back or limiting them in some way. Um, but when I see black women writers engaging multiple categories, right, their mm-hmm. writing is inherently intersectional um, and intersectional in a very messy way, not in a simplistic identity politics kind of way. Um, it really forces us to think about how disability manifests for us, um, for black women, for black communities in ways that are very different and often misrecognized um, as being direct, you know, related to the gender or race instead, that these things are get kind of messy. And so the the, the quote you gave for was from chapter three, where I talk about um, Parable of the Sower and Parable mm-hmm. of the Talents by Octavia Butler. And the main character, Lauren Olamina, has hyper empathy, which makes her feel the pain and pleasure of people around her. Um, and so on. A if I'm just focusing on disability, you know, I could talk about the ways that her dystopian time period impacts that, um, there's more pain in that world. But even in a more realist world, if she has this sort of disability, her race and gender also impact it, right? Um, I'm thinking about the recent study that came out after I was finished with this book that medical professionals there's a study of um, med students and residents that they genuinely held beliefs that black people experience pain less and differently um, including mm-hmm. beliefs that like black skin is thicker that like you have to push harder to get through it um, mm-hmm. these right this is like recent like last year study um, it's incredible to me that these racialized understandings of bodies also means that we then have a different understanding of what disability means mm-hmm. for black folks. Um, and that's part of what I think black women writers are able to do is to say how it's not clear cut sometimes where race ends, where disability begins and that these things are so imbricated in one another and constantly influencing one another. Um, and I'm, also thinking here about the fact that a large percentage of Black people who are injured or killed by police violence are often also people with disabilities and in particular mental disabilities. So the ways that Blackness gets conflated with um, mental disability, lack of control um, as danger, right? All of these things start to come together in ways that are super messy, but important and interesting. And that I think is, um, as you said, the impact of ableism on all black folks because of the way that disability and blackness have been conflated for so long in our history. Um, that we have to grapple with the way that ableism actually impacts even non-disabled Black people and address that, that trying to ignore it, to just say, no, we're just as capable, um, to ignore that ableism, to strive for, a- for able-bodiedness and able-mindedness um, in an uncomplicated and uncritical way. Um, it means that we're kind of becoming complicit in this form of discrimination that is, is impacting us as well.
0: That's that's really interesting. I, I remember kind of around the time that this this study that you referenced came out, were also discussions about. Um, Serena Williams's sort of experience uh, with childbirth and having mm-hmm. her her pain um, and her sort of subsequent illness minimized by healthcare professionals, and and so when you talk about you know perceptions of of black bodies and black women's bodies, particularly, um, you know, is, is the perception of of Serena Williams as perhaps you know like the the archetype of the. The able bodied person. Um, and so then how, how that affects it to get back to your point about, you know, how, how ableism affects, affects everyone. Um, you know, is, is how these things again continue to be implicated in, in contemporary conversations of, of, you know, um, of, of, of black women's experiences. And I also want to, to want to put a pin in your, your reference to, to police brutality. I, I, I and I want to come back to that in a second, but I, I, am also really grateful that you mentioned, um, Octavia Butler's, um, you know, kind of parable series and your, your close relationship to, Butler's entire corpus of texts, and so I was wondering whether you could tell us a little bit what that experience was like, just kind of working with Butler, both her published texts and with her archive as well. What what was that like?
1: Oh, it's it's absolutely incredible. Um, I came to Butler in college, so pretty late. She she passed away in in two thousand six, and I think that was. Just shortly before that was the first time I had read any of her work. Um, and becoming a, a Butler scholar in many ways has been one of the most amazing experiences. Um, her work is so incredibly rich, um, so complicated, so good at dealing with with power dynamics in Super messy ways, ways that make us feel like there isn't really a clear victim or villain here. That power operates um, in all kinds of directions. Um, I love her work so much, and then to get to go to the her archive. So her papers are at the Huntington Library in um, San Marino, California. She um, donated them there um, after she passed away. And wow. she, there are hundreds of boxes. The finding aid is like 500 pages. It is a massive, massive archive. Um, it's been open for, since late 2013, so for a good amount of time now, and it is now one of their most ar- access archives because she kept absolutely everything. She had journals, she journaled regularly, constantly, all of her drafts, letters, um, she kept, so much, so much paper and all of her research. So it was such a joy to get to spend a month there going through her papers, um, starting with materials directly related to the book and then looking more broadly for other um, representations and discussions of disability. Um, I learned a lot about who she was as a person. Um, I mean, she was disabled, so she she had dyslexia and um, dealt with some some depression, I would Call it, um, and that that kind of discussion of hers an author appears in um, one of my articles in a recent special issue of Palimpsest on Butler. Um, so I feel like I got to know this person as a friend, like a friend that I never got to meet, but that I know really intimately now. Um, and the other thing that's been such a gift about getting to be in Butler's archive and become more of an expert on Butler herself um, is that the community of what I would call Butler scholars, um, particularly the Octavia Butler Legacy Project, um, which is run by Iana Jamison and Moya Bailey. It is the most beautiful and supportive group of scholars because there's so much richness to her work. There are people who are approaching it from all kinds of angles, right? From queer studies and climate change, eco-criticism, race, gender, disability, sexuality, class um, from, you know, more traditional literary um, as science fiction studies approaches. So it doesn't feel competitive. It feels like people really just want to support each other and lift each other up um, in their work. And I credit that to who Butler was and the kind of things she really wanted to make connections. Um, she wanted to There was a quote recently, I was on a panel about Butler actually this past weekend at WISCON, a feminist science science fiction convention here in Madison. Um, And I used a quote from the archive where she talks about, you know, I'm never going to have children. And despite how um, she says something about like, I'm, you know, often unhappy with my looks Mm. and my intellect, but with my writing, I can leave something permanently useful behind. Um, and that was really what she wanted. And it's amazing to see how in her published work, as well as in her archive, she's leaving the stuff behind that is creating new communities um, in ways that I just I don't often see among academics. You know, it is a very non-competitive, incredibly supportive community among the Butler scholars who have been working in this archive together.
0: Wow, that sounds amazing. W- one of the ways that Butler has been described, I think, is is prescient, right? The way that her her texts seem to foretell some of the more dystopian realities of our present. Um, yeah. <laughs> and and I, I think about that, particularly when you discuss in Chapter 2 your experience kind of watching Lando Castile's murder on the news and and the anxiety that that produced um, and and that made me think about about my own experience kind of watching that. Unexpectedly, I didn't know what I was going to be watching, um, mm. and and I, and I think that you know what you describe is something that perhaps many people who feel affected by this reality can can relate to. Um, you write specifically, and, and I want to quote here your words because they are so incredibly important. Um, you say, "Denials of systemic violence and dismissal of black fear and anger serve to deny the reality of black people." and to continue to position us outside of able-mindedness through accusations of paranoia, overreaction, and unreasonableness. I keep coming back to the same question of the wealth of possibilities that speculative fiction offers. Um, In this present moment, as we read about time travel and other worlds and beings. And we recognize those texts as more than simple escapism, particularly because your work also nudges us to see, um, you know, what is, what is possible in these texts? What possibilities does speculative fiction offer us to imagine liberation, even as we face the reality of violence on constant replay, right? In the world and also in the media around us.
1: Yes, um, I fully believe that speculative fiction offers us something that has a real and useful um, practical connection to the world. It's often considered to be, yes, very escapist, um, juvenile, but there's such good work happening that is deeply and directly tied um, to contemporary political issues and responding to those contemporary political issues, but engaging it by breaking outside of certain rules to help us think about these topics differently. Um, there's an edited collection inspired by Butler's work called Octavia's Brood. Um, it's edited by um, Willita Imarisha e. and Adrienne Marie Brown. Um, but there's a quote that I love in the introduction to it um, from Imarisha, e. mean um, she says, whenever we try to envision a world without war, without violence, Without prisons, without capitalism, we are engaging in speculative fiction. All organizing is science fiction, um, and that to me is—it has framed so much of of what I how what I do and how I think about um, this work because it's true. When we're trying to think, what what would a world look like without police? What would a world look like in which Black people are free? Um, Even though we talk about wanting these things, what would that actually look like? Practically speaking, what would it look like and what would we have to do to get there? And that is an act of speculative fiction. It's wanting and imagining a world that is absolutely not a real world for us right now. Um, I often also think about that quote that it's on a bunch of T-shirts and things online. I don't know where it comes from, but this idea that I am my ancestors' wildest dreams it may be Ava mm-hmm. DuVernay that it came from. I'm not sure, but I've seen it as a meme. Um, I think about that a lot as, you know, as a Black queer woman who has a PhD and, you know, is at this research institution being paid to teach people. And this is, this, I am science fiction. You know, a few generations ago, I would have been mm. unimaginable, absolutely unimaginable. Mm-hmm. And so I think that if we can connect for folks who may think, I don't care about aliens. You know, I don't care about space travel. That's fine. There's so much speculative fiction that isn't that. And that's one of the things I hope my book can do for um, literary scholars and feminist scholars who may not care about this genre to understand the value of it and to understand the extreme kinds of differences that happen, the the immense variety within the field, and that there are a lot of authors who really are trying to help us understand how we can live differently, relate to each other differently, deal with power differently. Um, and part of that has to be that we have to break from some of these rules of reality, because imagining a world without structures like prisons or police, really is a complete overhaul of our world structure, right? Um, So Mm -hmm. that for me has been great and a lot of this is happening really with writers of color, um, disabled writers, feminist writers, Um, they are the ones who are pushing this genre to do more than just think about wouldn't it be cool if there were robots, you know?
0: Right. I mean, I I think you make such a powerful articulation of of the value of speculative fiction, you know, in this conversation, in your book. Um, Since reading your book, I have raided my library for every Octavia Butler book I can find. Um, I'm consistently scrolling through Netflix for like, you know sci-fi type series and movies i'm like i must imagine new worlds um and so no it's been such an amazing experience and and I, i really encourage listeners to um to get a copy take a look at body minds reimagined disability race and gender in black women's speculative fiction sammy thank you so much for joining us
1: today thank you so much for having me this was so great